Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light for our path, and we thank you, Lord, for the promises that you've made in it. We pray that you would cause us to believe it more deeply than we have before. We pray, Lord, that you would cause us to meditate on your word, to hide it in our hearts that we might not sin against you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I'll never forget the day in an elementary Hebrew class. I was an enthusiastic young seminary student. I was so excited to learn Hebrew. And I had this teacher that was just mean. He was... He was he was not nice. And I was so enthusiastic about the Bible, and I couldn't wait to, to be able to access the scriptures in Hebrew. And I, and I said one day in class, Professor, can you tell us more about Genesis 3.15? And this is what he said. Now, this was a Bible-believing seminary, so I did not respect, expect, I did not expect the response that I was about to get. But this is what he said. He says, it's just a snake in a garden. We've got to get rid of the myths, start getting rid of the myths somewhere. And I was appalled. I could not believe what I was hearing. This man was saying, it's just a snake in a garden. And it's a myth that there was a talking snake and that there was more going on there than something like what I read in this, in this Jewish commentator that I was reading this week. This Jewish commentator um, that was recommended to me, commentary on the book of Genesis. And this guy says... He says, uh, you know, snakes don't talk. And so in the final analysis, what we have to conclude is that what's being reflected here is simply Eve's desire as she is tempted by the tree. There's no talking snake in the garden. Eve feels desire, and that story is being dramatized as though there is some snake. And I want to tell you what I think that's like. Several, so those two things, you know, it's just a snake in the garden. We've got to get rid of the myths. And... This is just Eve's desire. All that way of interpreting, several years ago, um, I got to go to the Grand Canyon. And the Grand Canyon is so massive and so impressive that it's one of those things that you really, you, you can't imagine it and you don't really believe it until you're looking at it. And then you're just astounded, you're stunned. And the trip that I got to go on was a rafting trip down the Colorado River, through the middle of these massive walls of rock. And that water is powerful. That water is so powerful that it will suck you under and kill you if you're not careful. And, and I don't know how those currents work. And I don't know how the, that canyon got there. I mean, there were some theories offered and so forth. But there are mysteries there that I cannot explain. Well, I think that, that these theories about Genesis 3 are kind of like somebody coming along and hearing of the Grand Canyon and saying, I'm just going to dig that for myself. And then I'll get my water hose, and I'll pour water in it, and I'll tell people that this is the Grand Canyon, and this, this stream of water here is the Colorado River. It's just not the real thing. It's not the real thing. Biblical truth is like the Grand Canyon and the Colorado River. And these human explanations, these cheap imitations, they don't even begin to compare 
with the real thing. And, and in the same way that I don't know how that canyon got formed, and I don't know how that current in the river is so powerful, there are things about this text that I'm not going to be able to explain to you. I don't know when or how Satan fell. I am not told that. I don't know how it was that he took over the snake. There's a lot of stuff that I do not have an answer for, but that doesn't mean it's not there. I don't, I don't know a lot of things about that canyon and that river. It doesn't mean it's not there. And it doesn't mean that some cheap imitation that some guy made up is going to compare to the real thing. So I'd invite you to open this morning to Genesis chapter 3. And we will look here. And as, as you turn there, let me remind you of some things that we've seen in the first couple of chapters of, of Genesis, in the first half of Genesis 3 when we were together here in Genesis a couple of weeks ago. In Genesis 1... We saw in, in uh, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, that the whole world is formless and void. And then we saw in verses 3 through 30 how God forms and he fills. And just to review briefly, on, on day 1, he, he calls light into being. So it's like he, he forms light. And then on a corresponding day, on day 4, he, he fills uh, the, the, the heavens and he fills out the light with the sun and the moon and the stars. And then on day two, he forms the skies. He makes this separation between the waters above and the waters beneath. And then on a corresponding day, on day five, so days one and four match, days two and five match, day five, he fills the skies with birds, and he fills the waters below with fish. And then on day three, he forms the dry land. He causes the waters to be separated and the dry lands to, be, to appear. And then on day six... He fills the dry land. He puts land animals there, and then he makes people as the crown of his creation. And then matching the opening statement of formless and void at the beginning of the chapter is the concluding statement in chapter 1, verse 31, that the Lord saw everything that he had made, and it was all very good. And then in chapter 2, we have this picture of abundance, lavish abundance in the Garden of Eden. And not only is there everything that anyone could desire in the way of, of food to be eaten, all of this, this lush vegetation and, and these wonderful fruit trees that, that are bearing, all for the enjoyment of the man and the woman, but there's a perfect intimacy and an unhindered openness between them as they are both naked and unashamed. They are not only unashamed, they are unafraid because there is no sin in the world. And then the last time that we were together, we began to look at chapter 3, and we see the way that the serpent comes in, and he begins to tempt the woman. And uh, I pointed out, I think, that the word that's translated in 2.25, that they were both naked and unashamed, is reused in 3.1 when we read that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. And I think that there's a, there's a word play here when the man and after the man and his woman and his wife, after the man and the woman, after they sin, they knew that they were naked. I think part of the reason for the choice of the word naked to describe the craftiness of the serpent is that when the man and, his, and the woman come to know that they're naked, it's like they're a little bit like the serpent now. Now, now they go to hide themselves and now they go to hide from God. And we saw last time the way that God calls them out. And, and he's so gentle and kind with them, asking them these questions. Where are you? Um, 
Have you eaten of the tree? What is this that you've done? As though he's inviting them to confess and repent. And they're not ready to do that yet. And so what we're going to see here is almost like a, a, an enactment of the gospel. Because what you have in, in the man and the woman and the serpent is you have unrepentant sinners. And then what comes is an announcement from God of what he is going to do to bring about salvation. And on the other side of that announcement, I think we're going to see people acting in faith. We're going to see responses of faith to the word of God. So I would like, invite you to look with me at Genesis 3. And what we're, going to, what we're going to look at today, we're going to start and just see how far we go, see how our time lasts. But after the sin, in chapter 3, verses 6 through 8, um, what, what we're going to see is the way that the man and the woman are encountered by the Word of God. And, and I really want to try to capture the, the narrative impact of the life-giving and life-explaining words of judgment and hope that are here. Life-giving and life-explaining words of judgment and hope. As we approach Genesis 3.14, let me invite you to, what, to, to consider the way, that, the way that this narrative goes. You know, you, you get 2.17, you get the prohibition. In the day that you eat of it, you'll surely die. And then they eat of it. And then look at 3.6. After the woman uh, took some of its fruit there and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And then the next thing that they do in 3.8 is they hide. And what, inf what informs their hiding is confidence that God is going to keep his word. They know, he said if we eat this fruit, we would die. Now we've eaten of the fruit, we hear him coming, we expect death. And I suspect that both of them felt something like this. We should have thought about this before we ate that fruit. If, I think they're feeling something like, if we had thought more deeply on the warning, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. If we had thought more carefully about what's entailed by that, we would not have thought that it was worth it to eat the fruit. I mean, look at the bargain. Eat the fruit for these gains that the serpent has tempted them with, but you're going to die. Is it worth it? Do you get to enjoy the gains? If you no, you don't get to enjoy the gains that the serpent is offering. You die. It's not worth it. And... We're all in this room. We're all sinners. So we know this feeling, don't we? we? We have all had the experience of being caught out in our sin. We've all had the experience of the truth of Numbers 32, 23. Be sure your sin will find you out. And we've all approached something that we knew we shouldn't do. And then we've all had the experience of being found out in our sin and, and wishing, I should have hidden the word in my heart that I might not sin against the Lord. So let me offer you as, as a first point of application in this sermon, and this, this is going to be reiterated as we continue, this is your application. Believe the Word of God. Believe the Word of God. And, and 
I would invite you to reflect on, on the man and the woman, Adam and Eve here. They, they surely believed the word, didn't they? They believed when God said, you can eat of all the trees in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge and good and evil you may not eat. In the day you eat of it, you will surely die. They believed that. It wasn't that they were saying, as they were tempted, it wasn't that they were saying, we don't, we don't think God exists, and we don't think God tells the truth. They weren't throwing off that knowledge. If you had asked them, do you believe what God has said about this tree? Surely they would have said, absolutely. He said we'd die if we eat of it. But somehow, what was offered by the tree, what was offered by the snake, came to outweigh what they knew to be true. And so when I, when I say believe the word of God, I'm, I'm calling for and really praying that we will all experience a belief that goes deeper than this surface level knowledge that the man and his woman were not denying. The man and the wife, Eve, they were not denying the truth of God's word when they succumbed to the temptation. We want that, that deep knowledge that brings about obedience. This, this heart level, gut level truth where we believe God's word and it has formed who we are. And as a result of it, we obey in part because we fear him. And then the fear, we can see that when they hide themselves. And then we're going to pick up now in verse 14 as the Lord God begins to speak to the serpent. And as we look at this text in Genesis 3, 14 and following, I just want to say that Genesis 3, 14 through 19, I think, is one of the most important passages in all of the Bible. In fact, I think that if, if we analyze this text, uh, we will find that all the problems that everybody in the Bible has, and I would go so far as to say all the problems that everybody in the world has, they all stem from these words of judgment. All of our problems stem from human sin and the way that God has judged human sin. That's where all our problems come from. So I, I, I cannot overstate the importance of this passage for understanding the Bible and for understanding your life. And this is in part why I referred a moment ago to the life-giving and life-explaining words of judgment and hope that are here. This passage explains our lives. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this. Note the way that God is, is holding the serpent accountable. Because you have done this. He doesn't offer the serpent an opportunity to make excuses. There are no excuses for the serpent. He doesn't offer the serpent an opportunity to explain or to answer questions or to defend himself. The serpent stands condemned. Not because God is unjust, not because God is unfair, because of what the serpent did. Because you have done this. And then three fearful words. Three fearful words that we hope and pray nobody in this room hears from the almighty and living God. Cursed are you. Those are words of finality. Those are, those are words that are not leaving open a door of hope. Cursed are you. And it, as, as you just pass your eyes over the, the succeeding, the verses that follow, the Lord doesn't talk this way to the woman whom he's going to address in verse 16. 
And he doesn't talk this way to the man whom he will address in verses 17 through 19. Only the serpent hears the words, cursed are you. And then an indicator that, that Moses means for us to understand the serpent and his offspring in a certain way is the fact that in the next chapter, in Genesis 4, after Cain has killed Abel, look at Genesis chapter 4, verse 11, where the Lord says to Cain, and now, and they, they reverse the order of the words, but in Hebrew, the words are in the exact same order. You are cursed, the Lord says to Cain. But in Hebrew, in Genesis 3, 14, it's arur atah, cursed are you. And in Genesis 4, 11, it's arur atah, cursed are you. And by means of this phrase, Moses means for us to understand, okay, Cain is an example of the seed of the serpent. So the Lord's going to talk about the seed of the serpent in Genesis 3.15, and then it's almost like Moses is saying, I know you got questions about what I mean when I, when I talk about the seed of the serpent. Let me answer that question for you. And he reuses this phrase, cursed are you, to, to establish for his audience that Cain is the kind of person to be interpreted as seed of the serpent. And this is the way the rest of the Bible interprets it. John chapter 8, Jesus says to his opponents in Jerusalem, you are of your father, the devil. And, and your desire is to do his desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and you're seeking to kill me. And he's the father of lies. When he speaks, he's the, he lies and he's the father of lies. And you people are telling lies about me, Jesus says to those guys. And then uh, John, over in 1 John 3, verse 10 and following, he's going to say, this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. And John is interpreting what we're going to see in 3.15, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And then he, then he goes on to say, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And, and, and so the Bible is interpreting for us this narrative from Moses forward. And that phrase, cursed are you, is telling us how we're to interpret the seed of the serpent. It's those who act like the devil, those who are unrepentant, those who are opposed to God, and they're not going to alter from being opposed to God, and they are under God's judgment. The Lord says to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. Now, this reference to livestock and the beasts of the field, this recalls all the animals that God caused to be formed from the earth back in chapter 2, and all the animals that he caused to to populate the dry lands on day six back in Genesis chapter one. And then he says, on your belly you shall go. And whatever this means about whether this was a crocodile that had some kind of arms and the arms, I don't know. What it, I don't, there are mysteries I don't understand. You can tell me about the current. I'm still not going to understand how it works. That's fine. Um, there are theories that people have. Whatever it means... At the end of the day, it means that the, that the serpent is being shamed. The serpent is coming under the judgment of God, and God is shaming the serpent. And God is causing the serpent to bear his shame. And this is one of the wonderful things about the gospel. The gospel gives us hope. It doesn't leave us in a hopeless, cursed condition. And the gospel takes away our shame and our guilt. But the, the serpent doesn't get hope, and he doesn't get any relief from the shame. On your belly you shall go. And then God's punishments fit the crimes. The serpent, back in, back in Genesis chapter 1, 
starting in verses 28 and continuing through verse 30, the Lord says that he's given all the plants and every tree with seed in its fruit. He's given all this to eat for, for the man and the woman and every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for good, uh, for food, the Lord says back there in Genesis chapter 1, verse 30. But then the serpent, he tempts the woman with respect to food that may be eaten, food that, is been, that has been prohibited. And so his punishment is going to deal with food. We read there in verse 14, dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So he sinned with respect to food. He's going to be punished with respect to what he may eat. And then just as that cursed are you phrase establishes for us in chapter 4 who the seed of the serpent are, so also the idea of of dust being food. We saw this in Micah, at the, in Micah chapter 7, the enemies of the people of God are going to eat dust like their father the devil. It's in Psalm 72. Uh, the, the, David says in Psalm 72 of the future king, may his enemies lick the dust. In other words, may they eat the same food that their father has been cursed to eat. And what's happening in, in Psalm 72 and in Micah 7 is David and Micah are saying, those who are, who are against us, the people of God, are also against God. And what's going to happen to them is the same thing that happened to God's first enemy. And that brings us to verse 15. And as we approach uh, Genesis 3.15, I want to come at this at, from at least three angles. And, and I think all of this is intended by the author of this text. I think Moses intends for us to think about these things. The first angle I want to come at it is uh, the, from the angle of how would, how would the man and the woman process this as they hear God saying these words of judgment to the serpent? That's our first angle. And then we'll come at it, how would the snake process these words as he hears the Lord speak these words to him? And then thirdly, I want to come at this, um, how, did, how does God uh, intend, the, how does God, Moses present God intending these words? So first, the man and the woman, how would they process these words? Well, let's think about what they're expecting. Genesis 2, 17, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. They eat. They hear him coming. They hide because they're afraid. He's going to put us to death. He's going to execute us. He calls them out. They're standing before him now, and what they're expecting is death sentence is about to fall. And then the Lord starts talking to the snake, and he says these words. I will put... Now, one more thing. He starts talking to the snake, and they know we have just sided with the snake against him. And that's why we're about to be condemned. And they hear him say the words, I will put enmity between you... And the woman. And what that does is it says to the man and the woman, by God's word, we're not going to be on the snake's side. God has just made an alteration by his word that makes it so that the man and the woman are no longer aligned with the serpent. And, and if, we, if we just skip forward to how this is spoken by God, God doesn't say, I might put enmity between you and the woman if they get their act together. He doesn't say, I, I, 
I could maybe one day put enmity between you and the woman if they prove themselves to be worthy. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, um, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed if they can get along and have seed. No, this is a divine pronouncement of what will be. And by the word of God, the man and the woman are informed of at least a couple of things. One, God just said, we're not on the snake's side. That's the first thing that I think awakens in their brains. As the man and, and the woman process these words, it, it becomes evident to them, there is now hostility, enmity, conflict between us and that tempter who brought evil into the world, who caused caused us to think it would be a good idea to sin against God, and God just said that we're now opposed to him. That's the first thing. Second thing, I think that probably immediately begins to dawn in their minds is, it doesn't look like we're going to die immediately, because enmity implies ongoing conflict. And so I think what this thought is going to start being born in their brains that, that goes like this. We get to live. We get to stay alive. He's not going to kill us because there's going to be enmity, at least, at least between the snake and the woman. And then when the Lord continues in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And then he says the words, and between your seed snake and her seed Now, Adam can say, all right, if it was just enmity between the snake and the woman before, now I know that I get to live too because I'm necessary for seed. She can't have offspring without me, so I get to live too. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. I know that if you're looking at ESV like me, it says offspring, that's fine. It's a word that means seed, that's in the footnote. All through uh, the, the ESV translation, they do this seed. They, they translate um, the word seed as offspring, and I will probably continue to use the word seed. Uh, what you have here is a word that's like offspring that can refer to one individual, or it can refer to a whole bunch of individuals, a bunch of offspring. So I can talk about my singular offspring, or I can talk about my collective offspring. And, and that dynamic this sort of interplay between the one and the many is going to happen across the book of Genesis. And, and we'll return to it as we, as we proceed. It's evident from the next statement in verse 15 when the Lord says, He shall bruise your head. It's evident that he's talking about one male seed of the woman. And, and there is also evidence that the man and the woman have immediately concluded the Lord has just given us a word of hope From the very next chapter, look at chapter 4, verse 1. Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. It's like she's saying, okay, the Lord promised seed and said he would bruise the serpents. And now maybe maybe this is him. Maybe he's the one. Well, that doesn't prove out to be the case. Cain murders Abel. Look at what she says when Seth is born down in chapter 4, verse 25. Adam knew his wife again. Note the similarity with 4.1. And she bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another seed instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. 
So from those two statements, I think it is evident immediately in the book of, the, book of Genesis that the man and the woman are looking for the seed of the woman. And then the next chapter is this genealogy that tracks down through the generations. Why would they keep track of the generations? Why would there be a genealogy? In the, they're looking for the seed of the woman. That's why. That's why the line of descent matters. They're looking for the fulfillment of the promise. Okay, so I think the man and the woman would process Genesis 3.15 in this way. Last, last words of verse 15, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Um, again, if you're the man and the woman processing this, I think you're thinking, at least you should be thinking, you're intended, I think, by the, by the author to think something like this. Look, we can survive a heel wound, but a head wound can be mortal. So it sounds to us like the Lord has just promised that our seed is going to overcome he, him. So sin and the death that results from sin are not going to have the last word in God's world. God has just, by the word that made the world, promised that the seed of the woman is going to overcome the one who brought sin and the death that results from it into the world. Now, how would this be processed by the snake? Verse 15, when he has, hears the word, I will put enmity between you and the woman, think about how unrepentant sinners who feel no remorse, who feel no fear of God, who feel no sorrow for what they've done, think about how they respond to a statement like this. You bet there's enmity. They're not on my side. I'm out to destroy them. And this is exactly the way that Jesus describes him, isn't it? John 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. So I, I suspect that we're intended by the author to imagine that as the serpent hears these words, hatred and rage and enmity begin to swell in his heart with a fury that is probably beyond our ability to imagine. He hates us more than I think we can begin to conceive. And he's especially going to hate this offspring of the woman of whom it is said he will, he will bruise your head. And now, the Lord. What is the Lord saying? Again, the Lord is not making any of this conditional. Let me, let me say to you, and, and I want you to hear these words, and I want you to hear me very clearly. If God is going to save you, it is not going to be because of your response. If God is going to save you, it is not going to be because you got your act together or you got to where you got along with people or you got to where you, you met a, a sort of basic level of obedience or you performed in a... No, none of that is required for salvation. God simply announces to, the, to, to this trio of sinners, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to do it. And that makes salvation as certain as the very word of God. And we should hear this as so completely liberating and freeing. Because the, the, the response that is required is only belief. It's only the faith that says, I am going to live like I believe this is true. That's all you have... You simply have to believe it. If you believe it, you will live like it is true. This is like Jesus telling his disciples, 
you are going to go and bear fruit. It's going to happen. He's announced it. It can't not happen any more than when God says, let there be light. Light could say, no, don't think so today. Light cannot respond to God's word that way. And if God says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, and her seed is going to bruise you, that's what's going to happen. So I, I don't know what, what potential legalisms there are in this room, but we can just do away with all of them. This, this will free us from... Legalism springs from this idea of, I've got to perform. I've got to keep this list of rules. I've got to act in such a way. I've got to do this or that. And all that, we can just, just throw all that in the garbage. God's mercy and love are not dependent upon any of those things. And the, the wonderful good news of the gospel is that for those who hear this word... And those who believe this word, they start wanting to read the Bible. They start wanting to call out to this merciful, good, saving, all-powerful God. They start wanting to live for him. Time has gotten away from me so quickly. Um, let me say a word about, about this promise. Um, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And then when you put this together with Genesis 1:28, the first thing God tells the man and the woman to do, God blessed them and God said to them, "Be fruitful and multiply." And we talked about how in, when we were in that verse, we talked about how what God wants is he wants those who bear his image, the man and, and the woman, to reproduce so that the whole world is full of those who bear God's image. The whole world is just saturated with people who reflect God's character, God's ways, God's authority all over the world. That's what God wants. And, and I say that to say this, Genesis 1.28, Genesis 3.15, look how important children are in the Bible. The Bible says that not only does God's purpose at creation depend upon children, but that God's purpose in salvation depends upon the birth of seed upon children. And then we read earlier in the, past, earlier in the service, we read Revelation 12, which also is interpreting Genesis 3 the way I am. You've got the singular seed of the woman that the dragon wants to eat as soon as it's born, and then you've got the rest of the seed of the woman. That when he fails to kill Jesus, he goes off to, to make war on the woman and the rest of her seed, the collective believers. The kingdom depends upon the seed of the woman. This ought to produce in us a culture that does two things. Number one, a culture that esteems motherhood. And number two, a culture that values children. Like nobody else in the world, we have theological reason to esteem motherhood and value children. So the, the, the way that this results, the, the, the way I hope the, these stories, these, these truths, when I say stories, I don't mean to suggest they're untrue, absolutely true. The way that these narratives in the early chapters of Genesis, I hope that the way they apply to us is they start they start affecting our instincts. They, they, they touch us and change us 
at a gut level, at the sense of what we hold most true, so that these realities become basic components of our worldview, and so that we all are united in in esteeming motherhood and valuing children. And as a result, as a sort of outworking application of the way that this affects us instinctually, is that we don't think that women are really valuable if they can work in, in, in the way that men can. And I, what I mean is like jobs and professions and all those things. It's great for women to do those things. But we don't think that's what makes them valuable. What we think is... Motherhood's awesome. And, and there's, there's no hint of an implication that if they were really going to do something valuable, they'd pursue a professional career. That, that's gone from them. We want that out of our heads. We want to esteem and value motherhood, nor do we want to have any kind of worldly accounting of children. We don't, we don't want to think, those kids are so bothersome. No, we want to think, God's purpose in creation and salvation depends upon these children, depends upon these little ones. And this will affect the way that we respond when they're annoying. This will affect the way that we respond when they won't stop crying. This will affect the way that we respond when it's our turn to work in the nursery or children's church or the youth program. It'll affect the way that we think about that upcoming training session. Should. We should be people who say God's purpose in creation and salvation depends upon the little ones. As I was reflecting on this, I, I began to pray that the children of Kenwood, the people that the little people that come through here, that the Lord would grow them up to be oaks of righteousness. That these little ones, that that the Lord would, would raise up businessmen who would leverage everything that they've got for the gospel, all of their business acumen, all of their strategic thinking, all of their uh, ability to administrate, and all of this would be pointed at the kingdom of Christ. That the Lord would raise up physicians and, and healthcare workers, people who are ready to live out Christ's likeness as they make so many sacrifices for these people that they're trying to help get better. That, that we would have thoroughly Christian people pursuing these, these, these jobs, in part because of the way that, that businessmen and doctors among us are modeling this so well, this Christ-like self-disregard and self-sacrifice for the benefit of others, that the Lord would raise up engineers whose goal is to subdue the earth in fulfillment of God's purposes for the glory of Christ's kingdom. That the Lord would raise up pilots who will land the plane for the benefit of everybody that they're transporting from one place to another. They're faithfully doing their job for the benefit of others. To say nothing of how we pray that the Lord would raise up missionaries and pastors and Bible and theology professors and authors and musicians and church plant Christians, Christians who are going to say, Jesus told us to go make disciples. And that's what we're about. That's, what, that's the way we want to think about the children among us. And we don't want to think about motherhood in a way that's disconnected from these realities. So here are your three applications that I hope, as I said, will go deep into your soul. Number one, God's word is true. 
God's word is truer than we are able to perceive. God's, God's word needs to be true to us in, in a way that makes it so that when we are tempted, we, it's like, listen, I've heard this song before. I've heard you tell me these lies before, and I know what happened. I remember the feeling of, I should have listened. I should have meditated on God's word. I should have thought about the warning, in the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. I should have heeded God's, we want to believe it that way. Number two, we want to esteem motherhood. There's so many ways for us to do that, whether, whether you're an actual mother, whether you're a single female, whether you're a single male, whether you're an older person in the congregation, there's so many ways, even if it's just words of encouragement, even if it's, if it's I, I, I can't, I, too many ways to go into, ways for us to esteem motherhood and support mothers, and we want to value children, value children. You know what the polar opposite of the worldview that I'm describing is? It's a worldview that says, I want to be free to have sex with whomever I want, whenever I want. And whatever, whatever mistakes might come from that, I can just eliminate them. I can just murder them. That's like the, the other end. It's like the South Pole to the North Pole of esteeming motherhood and valuing children to say, we'll just kill them if we fail to prevent their conception to begin with. If you're, if you're here this morning and you want to know more about God's word of promise when he said, I'll put enmity between you and the serpent, and he, the seed of the woman, is going to bruise your head, snake. And, and maybe you realize, if, you don't re if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you don't realize this, you need to realize this. God is going to crush Satan. Altogether, completely, he will have no way to rise. There will be no future rebellion when God is done with him. There will be only torment and pain. And if you don't repudiate him, and if you don't clearly say, I'm not with the snake, I'm with God and the woman and the man and Jesus, if you don't clearly say that, you are going to be crushed with him. You should hear these words of God I will put enmity between you and the woman, and you should say, I don't want to be on the snake's side. I want to be on the, on the side that's at enmity with the snake. And, and maybe you're here and you're a visitor and, and you haven't yet made that clear. You haven't made a public profession of that faith. And, and this is what Jesus wants you to do. Jesus wants you to be baptized as a public testimony. I'm with Jesus. I'm with the seed of the woman. I'm against the serpent who wants to steal, kill, and destroy. I mean, if you want to be on the wrong side of history, that's the wrong side of history, to be with the serpent. And if you want to, if you want to identify publicly with Jesus, I'm going to ask the elders that are up in the balcony to stand up, uh, because uh, if you're in the balcony, you can make your way to one of these guys, and they'd love to talk with you. I'm going to ask, thank you guys. I'm going to ask the elders that are uh, down here in the, in the lower level to stand up so that everybody can see them. You can make your way to one of these guys. Some of them will be here at the front. I'm going to be standing at the back doors. We would love to visit with you. If you don't feel like approaching one of these guys, which they're, they're all wonderfully approachable, they'll be so glad to talk with you. If you don't feel like talking to one of them, talk to the person next to you. And if that person doesn't feel comfortable telling you what it looks like to follow Jesus, what you need to believe, they can get you to somebody that can help you. Or they can come with you 
to talk to one of us. We really are nice, happy people, and we won't be mean to you. Um, we'll, we'll be so thrilled to talk with you about these things. Please approach us. But don't get your head crushed with the snake. We don't want that for you. And we're not being mean telling you this. This is, I don't know if you realize it, but it's kind of you. It's kind, I'm sorry, it's kind of Christians to tell you that that's the path you're on. It's merciful of God to reveal that his enemies face destruction. God is being merciful when he gives these warnings. And what God wants to do by his word is to cause there to be enmity between you and the snake and to cause you to feel hope for the coming of the seed of the woman. These words, Genesis 3.15, are words that are intended to be life-giving. You know, the response of faith to this that we're going to come back to and look at more closely as we, as we continue, look down at verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. The word Eve in Hebrew sounds like the word life. The word life in Hebrew is chaya. The word living in Hebrew is chava, and that's her name. Uh, uh, the word Eve is chava, life is chaya, just one little consonantal change. And, and so Adam names her a, word, a name, gives her a name that sounds like life, and then explains she's the mother. What are they doing? They're responding in faith to the word of God. They're believing we're going to get to live. Life is going to result from this. And I am inclined to think that it's a life that they're hoping for that goes even beyond death. So I think they're already hoping sin is going to be vanquished. Death is going to be vanquished, which implies resurrection from the dead. Let's pray together. Father, in the same way that the Grand Canyon goes beyond all our abilities to describe it or even imagine it, your goodness in the gospel is indescribable, unimaginably good. Lord, we praise you that it, it doesn't depend upon our effort. We praise you that you didn't make it content, uh, contingent upon Adam and Eve responding in any way, but you just declared, I'm going to save. I'm going to vanquish the serpent. Lord, we praise you for overcoming sin, for triumphing over death. When the Lord Jesus paid the penalty on the cross and then rose from the dead, Father, we worship you. We thank you for the gospel. We pray, Lord, that you would keep any of us in this room from thinking that we somehow need to live up to some standard that we've got in our own brain before you'll save us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to simply and completely entrust ourselves to you. And Father, we pray that you would cause us to understand why in the world Psalm 8 would say something like, out of the mouths of babies and infants you have established praise to still the enemy and the avenger. Lord, we pray that you would cause us to understand how significant the weak things of the world, weak things like newborn babies, are in your program. Your program not only of causing your glory to cover the dry lands as the waters cover the seas, but also your program of the accomplishment of redemption and the making of disciples of all nations. Lord, cause us to esteem 
motherhood and to value children because of the gospel. Lord, we love you and we thank you for for all this goodness and all the things that we can't articulate. We praise you for all this in Christ's name. Amen.